This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of scripture. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of interest in the concept of the image of God because people have a sense that humans matter, that there's something special about being human. And maybe because we're all somewhat narcissistic, we want to be told how great we are. And so there's this intrinsic attraction to a doctrine that tells me that I have dignity and worth and I matter. And so there's been a lot of attention to the doctrine of the Imago Dei. What I find most fascinating about the history of interpretation is how little it seems to pay attention to the actual biblical text. Mm. And instead spirals off into a lot of philosophical and metaphysical conversations Preach. about what <laughs> about what makes humans different from animals. And yes. so then it, it's like there's the sense that if you could isolate what makes what's the difference between humans and animals, then you would know what the image of God is. Yeah. Instead of how about we read Genesis 1 really closely and carefully, and it will tell us what the image of God is, what right. it means. Not to say that that once we've isolated that, we know everything there is to know about being human. Obviously, there are lots of differences between humans and animals, but I don't think all those differences equal the image of God. Yeah. What are some of the primary differences that people spiral off into? So for sure, rationality mm-hmm. is a big one relationality sometimes is cited morality like having a moral compass um the ability to relate with god like having a spiritual side or a soul people Mm. will talk about having a soul as being unique um there are probably others those are the ones that i've seen most often and uh, speaking of moral so just sticking with the biblical text i I see you have a bunch of cows behind you on a mural um (laughs) But cows are held morally accountable if they murder humans. Uh, oh, and, yes, and they also, nine. yeah, and they also That's repent true. in sackcloth and ashes in Jonah. Whatever, whatever That's is going true. on there. So it seems like a hard case to, or there's some basic counterfactuals yeah. that might impede that that view. And that one of my concerns is that the more we're learning about the animal kingdom, the more it could erase the sort of differences that we're depending on to give Mm. us our sense of worth. So if we find out that animals are far more organized and coordinated than we thought, or if we find out that they're far, far smarter than we thought, does that then erode our sense of being different as human? If if we've grounded our our doctrine of the Imago Dei in that difference? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The bonobo monkeys or the bonobo chimpanzees, I'm sorry, will always, they, anything that you think that only humans can do, you'll find some case where a bonobo chimpanzee can do it, uh, yeah. including like selflessly warning others of danger. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so um, I think I have heard most often that people say, oh, Salem uh, uh, Elohim, this is image of God is uh, statues. That it's just referring mm-hmm. to statues. And so um, how does that make sense in Genesis 1? A, is that true uh, in your view? And B, how does that or not does it make sense or not make sense of Genesis 1? Well, Drew, it sounds to me like you're running in better circles than I have been. Because, <laughs> I because have students yes, who tell I, me this. So they've, yes, they've heard it from I, a good pastor. Yeah. 
I'm glad to hear that that idea is getting out there because I think that shows that people are trying to do their homework and look mm. into the historical and cultural background. And so, yeah, the word selim in Hebrew does seem to denote, in other passages, denotes a concrete statue or an idol. That's what it is. So if you have a, a temple to another god and you're going to put a selim in the most holy place and it's going to be an, a physical image of that god. And so I think... I don't think that's necessarily exhausts the all that we need to know about the Imago Day, but I think it's a helpful starting point because so often the history of Western philosophy has been cerebral. Mm-hmm. We've as we've thought about what it means to be human, all the things we're thinking about are things that are intangible. And atzelim in Hebrew is very tangible. It's it, it's a it's a body. <laughs> so so I think embodiment is at the very core of what's happening with the image mm-hmm. of God. Yeah, so what is the difference? Okay, you, you brought out the big E word for me, embodiment. Uh, and you talked about one of the distinctions is whether we have a soul in relation uh, to God. So just Genesis 2, you know, where do you see, like, do, do you see that as God ensouling humans or something else is going on there? The, the moment when God breathes into Adam? Yes. Yeah. Um, he's animating him. I, I'm a real skeptic when it comes to our ability to isolate parts of humanness into two parts or three parts. Right. <laughs> um, body and soul or body, soul and spirit. I, I'm sure that people who with more metaphysical training than I have had, which has been zero, and with more... <laughs> sophistication than I have, which is not very much, can can figure all of that stuff out. When I look at the Hebrew Bible, what seems clear to me is that a person, personhood includes all of the intangibles and the tangibles all as a package deal. Yeah. So I, I tend to think of personhood in holistic terms. And I really like the Bible Project video on Nefesh. Oh, yeah, it's in that's the a great Shemua one. Series. Yeah. I, sh- I always have my students watch it because Nefesh is traditionally translated soul. And yet you can have a dead Nefesh mm-hmm. in the Bible. Animals are even talked about as being Nefesh, Nefshim. And so it seems to me like we're imposing a later philosophical or metaphysical system back on the biblical text to try to, to isolate the parts. I think what's clear in Genesis 2 is that you have Adam's body it has not yet come to life without the breath of God. So there's a there's an enlivening that happens of his person or of his body. Um, but I would be hesitant to say that's his soul. And we're, we're confronted with some, again, counterfactuals, even in Genesis 2 and later in Genesis 6 and 9, right, or 8, I guess, where the animals also have the breath of life in them and, and are also created from the dirt. Uh, they are. And they're also told to be fruitful and multiply. Right. And that's the, that's another thing that people often tie to the Imago day. Oh, it's our maleness and femaleness and the, the ability that we have to procreate. That's the image of God. And, and we need, we need to multiply. That's, that's essential or intrinsic to what it means to be the Imago day. And I would say, well, but the animals are also male and mm. female and told to be fruitful and multiply. So if we're trying to isolate something that makes us different than the animals, that's not it. 
which I did discover because I'm putting out a book with with IVP. I was like, is it the same? Yeah, it is with IVP <laughs> on Darwinism. And one of the things I learned is that male and female dichotomy in the history of animals is an embarrassment for evolution, right? That if evolution had gone correctly, it would have been self-reproduction and that even large oh, animals yeah. can self-reproduce. But because sex and um, male and female reproduction is extremely costly, it's a uh, natural selection, mm -hmm. lots of mm -hmm. people get killed, mating rituals, et cetera, yeah. creates all kinds of hurdles, uh, unnecessary hurdles. So what do you do with that little piece of poetry in, in Genesis 1 where it's in his image, male and female, he created mm -hmm. them? Like what, what, why is that there and how do you package the image of God with that phrase and what follows after it? Yeah, the way I think about it is that it's it's telling us unequivocally from the get-go that men and women are both God's image, that there's that men don't have the corner on the market when mm. it comes to being God's image, that there's not a sort of uh, priority of being an ontological priority to be for maleness. Maleness is not the center and femaleness is not derivative. Male and female are together the image of God. I, I think one question that comes up in our generation these days is about what about someone who might fall in between mm. those two binaries, that binary of male and female, like someone, I mean, if we're thinking just of sexed embodiment, not of gender identity or expression, then, then we, we have intersex people whose right. chromosomally or, or genitalia wise are ambiguous in some way. And so then the question could be raised, well, is, is Genesis excluding those people as humans? Are they not the image of God? And, and I just want to say for anyone out there who's wondering, I don't think that the author of Genesis is trying to be exclusive in the way that they're defining humanity here. They're trying to be inclusive. Male and female are included. And so if there's someone who doesn't neatly fall into one of those two categories, if they're a human, if they have a human body, then they are the image of God. Mm. I think that's the point. Yeah, no, I think that's helpful, and um, and I, I'm glad you s separated out the kind of the biological aspect from how people feel and express because yeah. um, th I, I think that, that some of that is dealt with later in the Torah. Genesis 1 and 2 just really doesn't have anything to say to us about gender in terms if, – if we think of gender as separate from sex, hmm. um, gender roles or gen gendered identity, I don't I don't see it in Genesis 1 and 2. But there is male and female. And maybe someone's listening who's like, I have no idea what she's trying to do there. Why are you separating <laughs> sex and gender? So there's lots of conversations these days going on about our, our physical sex, the sex we were born with, being separate from gender identity. And, and I'm not I'm not supporting that distinction necessarily. I'm just saying I don't think that Genesis is leaning into the, the gender identity side of the conversation. <clears throat> it's talking about our our sexed embodiment. Um, the the body parts we're given yeah. when we're born are part of our embodiment, and those uh, include us in what's defined as the image of God. Yes. So I have found myself in really what I consider bizarre situations. Only bizarre because I would have not imagined them. Where. I am now really trying to tell students. I used to, you know, it used to be controversial when I'd say like we need to read uh, feminist critiques uh, 
and feminist theology because they're telling us the body matters. And I think the mm -hmm. biblical authors are completely on board with the body matters and, um, and, and embodied experience matters. <laughs> and now I've kind of hit the other edge where I have students who very vehemently want to deny that the body matters at all, that it doesn't matter yes. what kind of body you're in, everything's the same. Uh, yes, uh, and, and that actually your true self right. is not not connected to your body. Your body is this discardable shell or, or uh, a shell that can be changed or morphed to yeah. match who you think you are. Um, that, that has been a really fascinating development in, in thinking and philosophy in our day. And I didn't mean to get into the middle of that debate <laughs> by writing this book. I was just trying to follow Genesis where it took me. Yeah. And because of the focus I saw on, on physical embodiment, I sort of finished writing the book and then started to realize how relevant this is for the current conversation about who am I really? Mm -hmm. What does it mean to be human? And I, I don't think it has to do with our ability to have self-consciousness mm -hmm. or to be, you know, <clears throat> Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. And I feel like the Bible flat out disagrees with that. Mm. We aren't, we, we, it's, we aren't, we, how do I say this <laughs> ontologically? We aren't thinking things. We don't, we, we don't exist because we can think. If I was in a coma right now right. and had no brain activity, I would still be embodied as human and therefore I would still be the image of God. Right. So I don't think that we can attach thought or rationality to human dignity because then, then humans fall on a sliding scale mm -hmm. of more or less rational. And then, and then it begs the question, according to who? Right. Who gets to define what rational sounds like? Is it, is it Asian? Is it Latino? Is it Western? Like, there are different ways of, of conceiving of rationality. So I don't think that works. Yeah. And, uh, and you address in this book, uh, being God's image, the, uh, the issue that we're all in different states of vulnerability at different points in our life um, and different uh, different cultural um, attunement to what it means to be a human, right, can, uh, can feature. And you had some great stories from your um, – well, I remember the one story from the time in the Philippines uh, – uh, where you transgress, I don't want to give away the whole book, but where you transgressed a uh, cultural boundary and anybody who's Lots lived in another culture, like you know exactly how that feels. Yep. Um, yep. So how, you know, is there like a pangeic uh, version of what it is to be a human? I mean, are, or are we just really saying the Southwest Asian niche Hebrew view of what it means to be a human happens to line up with what the development in the West, some parts of the West, and that's good enough for us? Or do you think this really cuts cross-culturally? Um, I think it at least gives us the, the ground level starting point for the conversation. That physical human embodiment, it, that to qualify as God's image, you need to have a human body. Mm. And it, if you, this, this then becomes relevant to questions about AI and robots mm. and all sorts of things that I didn't actually write about in right. the book. But I talk about in the video course a little bit. Um, I did a video course with Seminary Now that goes along with the book. And I delved <laughs> into some of those areas that um, that occurred to me after I finished writing. Like, oh, AI is all the rage. Even since I finished writing, everyone's talking about chat GPT. 
and wondering what's the future of being human if computers can do our thinking for us. Well, if 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 our humanness does not rely on our being able to think better than everything else, then right. then we're actually okay <laughs> because the because AI is not embodied. Right. Um, was not born of a of a human male and female. It's so so anyway, I think the Bible gives us the the starting place for thinking about what it means to be human. I think my colleagues who are trained in metaphysics would say there's plenty more that we can explore and discover about being human that's worth knowing and exploring. I just wouldn't call those things the Imago Day. Okay. I think I think the author of Genesis is is saying there's something unique about humans and that is God made us phys- physically to rule over creation. So that the idea of rulership, I don't think is a prerequisite for being the image. I don't think it functions like if you're not ruling over creation, then you've lost your status mm-hmm. as God's image. I think the Imago Dei is our human identity mm-hmm. that we can't lose. It can't be diminished in any way. But it the implication of that status or identity ought to be expressed in rulership. Hmm. So we should be bringing order to the world around us, maintaining order, subduing things that ought to be subdued, which Adam and Eve failed to do with the serpent. They should have subdued it. Hmm. Oh, interesting. So, because he's a creature, he should have gotten the whip. Yep. He should have. <laughs> or gotten I've been the thinking a lot about this because for Women's History Month, I was asked to give a chapel message. Hmm. And I wrote an article for Christianity Today on Eve. Mm. So I combined the two and I was thinking about Eve's role. And I think sometimes Eve gets a bad rap that she was too bossy or too, that she took too much, she was too assertive right. or too Unwomanly. ambitious. Right. And I actually think, no, Genesis has defined for us who she is and what her role is. She is the Imago Dei. Hmm. The Imago Dei is supposed to rule the earth and subdue it, subdue the other creatures. And so it is her job to, to put out of the garden anything that calls God's goodness into question. Hmm. And so the problem in Genesis 3 is not that she was too bossy, but that she was not bossy enough. Eve should have you know, stood up and said, shut up and get out. You're not welcome here that that." That insurrectionist thought is not mm. welcome here. And it's because she capitulated to the serpent. And then her husband, who was silent and with her, also capitulated that we have our problems. So they should have been more assertive. Uh, that's interesting because I think we have a mutual friend who just died today, actually, uh, Leslie Bustard. Yes. Who uh, her, Both of her daughters went to my college and I got to know the whole family mm. very well. Um and uh, on a curb on move-in day, uh, she was asking me about how do I translate Isaiah Konegdo? And uh, mm-hmm. and I honestly didn't have any good ones for her. She's like, well, I've been thinking about this phrase, strong ally. Uh, mm-hmm. And of course, if you look at the the term Azer, like the idea that it's a military mm-hmm. that comes in and helps you in this time. And I, yes. I tell you, I've been hooked on that phrase from that point on yeah. because uh, I couldn't get it out of my head because there's no really good definition of Konegdo. But um, – yeah, but the, the idea that it is—it's like a strong ally, and it sounds like what you're saying is she should have been a strong ally to her husband. He should have backed her up. Yeah, um, and that the work that she was—that the work he was given to do was to to uh, care for and guard the garden. The mm-hmm. word is shamar, right? Which is the word for guarding. And then the question is, well, guarding from what? Right. Well, we don't have very far to look hmm. before we see something that got into the garden and started. 
uh, stirring up trouble that should have been kept out. And so I think that, and it's right after God gives Adam the job to to keep to um, care for and guard the garden that he says, oh, it's not good that you're alone. You need a, a strong ally to help you do this. And so it was Eve's job to be his ally in guarding the garden and subduing anything that would bring disorder to God's good world. And that's what they failed to do. Hmm. Okay, I want to go back to the AI thing because I think it's a great way okay. to like push the thesis a little bit. Um, sure. So uh, there was a really creepy article by a New York Times uh, uh, reporter who spent the weekend playing with Bing's version of uh, ChatGPT and, okay. and got it to like explore its darker side and admit that it actually wanted to get nuclear codes and you know it wanted to do all these things and then told the guy that he sh- she it was a she. She loved him and tried to talk him into leaving his wife over like two hours of chatting with her, right? So he got freaked out. He contacted Bing and he's like, you cannot release this to the public. This is not safe, you know? And they did. And Bing instantly shut it down. And they were going to release it that week. Um, And then somebody kind of responded to him as he tried to pursue what had happened. They said, first of all, the, the, the chat or the chat bot was not designed for a two hour conversation. It was designed for like, Mm -hmm. what's the best pasta around me or whatever. Right. Um, but secondly, he said, look, it's just a language prediction engine, which means it's just trying to produce something that it thinks you want to hear based on the text that you've given it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in some ways, it's just delivering up to you what it thinks, and if we can anthropomorphize it, desirable information. So is there yeah. a way in which we could say chat GPT, since it's just trying to predict the language that you want to hear, which from its perspective is just, sorry, we're, we're, I'm, I'm already doing it. <laughs> uh, I'm giving it agency. From its perspective, yeah. it's just a bunch of ones and zeros. Um, mm-hmm. Does that disqualify somebody from being the image of God as well if all it's trying to do is tell you what you want to hear? Yeah, I mean, that that goes back to the garden where the serpent's telling them what they want to hear. Um, and the thing about AI is it can only give us what's been input right. to it. So it, it's it's dependent on human genius or human deviousness, frailty and deviousness, <laughs> right, right, whatever. Right. It's what humans say that it's sifting through and sorting and recom- recombining in different ways. So a couple of weeks ago, my husband was playing around with this and a friend on the internet was, was playing around with it too. So I got a message through Facebook of someone who had asked chat, what is Carmen Imes' view of the Imago Dei? Hmm. And he sent me the few paragraphs about it. And it was really bizarre because all the things in the paragraphs were, it was like coherent phrases and sentences about the the image of God. But it was recombined in ways that are precisely the opposite of what I argue about the Hmm. image of God. So why did it get me wrong? Well, the book isn't out yet. And I have not done very many interviews on it yet. And I haven't released many written articles about it yet. So probably if you mm. ask chat in three months, what's Carmen Imes' view of the Imago Day, this conversation will be shaping its response and it, it will give a better response. My husband was playing with it and he, he said, write a poem about Carmen Imes. And it was scary good. <laughs> <laughs> it was all about how I teach the word of God with passion and I love my students and how I find so much meaning in my work and mm. how I write and speak. Like it was kind of, it like took my bio right. and, and made it, made it into something that almost rhymed. Right. 
Um, it does seem so, to like take favorable views of humans. It, I think it assumes that you're searching yourself. <laughs> sure, right. So it it must have taken, you know, however many different bios there are out there and recombined them right. and came up with this. And so there are things it can do, and there are things it can't do. It can't say things or recombine things in truly generative ways if humans haven't already had those thoughts, and it can't evaluate the the plausibility or the the goodness of what it's saying. Mm-hmm. And so it can be flat out wrong. Yeah. It it told my friend that I thought that the image of God was primarily functional and that it was based in rationality, mm. which I've just told you I don't believe. <laughs> and so so we can't rely on it to actually give us reliable information. What I what came to my mind as as the news started to break about what chat could do is man we got to get busy putting putting good right, content out right. there so that the chat can draw on actual good scholarship instead of dumb stuff that people are stay, saying. Yeah. So To be fair, I've had real scholars quote me as something I was saying, and it was actually something I was quoting in a book where I was saying I don't agree with it, but I was quoting it, but they quoted it as if it was my True. own. So yeah. we're all susceptible fair. to that one. We are. Uh, maybe I've even done it to somebody accidentally. I don't know. Hopefully not. Um Okay. So that's that's good. This is great. I want to do one more. I'm going to drag you into my little world of ritual. Um, is ChatGBT, can we say it's not, it can't be human, Imago Dei, also because it can't, quote unquote, do this in, remem- in remembrance of me. It can't mm. uh, dwell in a sukkah for, uh, for seven days in order that its generations might know. Um, yeah, that it's it's cut off from the very embodied human way of understanding wisdom and discernment. You know, that the kind that Deuteronomy ultimately prescribes um, yeah. because of body and because of ritual. Like that, that's a yeah. sweep at the yeah. knees. I mean, there's, okay, there's embodiment again, and I I think embodiment is way more important than I used to realize to what it means to be human and to even how God interacts with us. Mm. I'm just really struck that Jesus came as a human in a human body. He didn't. And he came through the body of a woman. Hmm. He, God could have just had him, boom, appear. But he went through the experience of growing in utero and being pushed through a birth canal and breastfeeding. Like he, Jesus experienced the fullness of human embodiment. And he was crucified, embodied. And he rose again, embodied. He doesn't. It's not like he lives on in our memories right. and, and someday we're all going to be floating in the clouds with him. Our souls will be reunited. It's not that. Right. It's very pointedly that our physical bodies are going to be raised to life. We will participate in new creation with him. So, yeah, ritual is is a regular reminder that our bodies are part of God's intentions, that creation is good mm. and that creation is part of what's coming. Not that this this experiment failed, so God's going to go with a different, you know, enlightened right. experiment for the next phase in which we won't have this the trappings of cells. Um, I want to point out something that's obvious to me, but maybe not obvious to everybody who's listening, is um, that your kind of doggedness here on this, I consider it good doggedness, 
<laughs> is really based in the fact uh, of something you're not saying, but you're preaching, which is that creation is ultimately kind of determinative for everything we think theologically. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you and I run into people who might say that with their mouth, but then they don't practice it with their words. Where do you find yourself, like in the church or the classroom, uh, where do you find this kind of lip service to creation but not actual practice creation popping up in various ways? Oh, all kinds of ways. Um, I find it in every time I'm looking for a recycle bin and can't find one on campus. Um, every time on a Christian I, campus, you can't find a recycling a bin? That's campus. anathema. No, we have recycle bins on campus, okay, but not okay. in every room. And I watch everybody just walk over and dump their water bottle and their cardboard box and their you know, their package lunch all into the same bin. And I'm like, how did we get to the point where this was okay with us? Yeah. Um, you sound like me with my kids. This is I'm the curmudgeon recycler at my house. So, yeah. So I I also encountered it again on Facebook last week, where somebody reached out to me um, to say something about how our future destiny is in heaven mm. with Jesus, and this world that's full of problems is going to be passed away. And I thought, no, God's going to God's going to restore what's wrong with this world. God is going to make it new and make it right. But it doesn't. So I feel like there's this very deep seated uh, perspective that this planet that we're on is going to burn up into nothing. Well, I mean, second Peter, <laughs> that's where they Peter cite it. Right? Fire, <laughs> yeah. Right. But it says that the elements are going to burn. It doesn't say the whole thing is going to burn. So then we have to define what do we mean by elements. And so the conversation I was having with someone this week was, well, but the parallel in Second Peter is to the flood. Mm-hmm. And that was destructive. It's like, yes, but there was still a planet when the flood was over. It, it, it didn't obliterate the planet completely. It was a kind of a reset button. And it was a renewal of the dirt, the cursed dirt as well. So It was. And so there's a reset and a renewal that happens that we get to participate in. Um, And I I think that matters. I think that distinction matters because if we think this is all going to burn and our bodies are going to burn and we don't have to worry about, then then self-care and Mm. creation care go to the wind. Yeah. Yeah, I... I, I teach this, this is one of my, you know, I take a whole class every semester uh, and I, I go over the, you know, the charts of the timelines of, of creation. Um, and I, every day or every semester, I'm shocked that I, every group of freshmen or seniors I have, they've never, they tell me they've never heard this before in their entire lives. The goal is to die and to go mm-hmm. to heaven, your soul. And I'm like, yeah, but then what? Well, what's this resurrection that Jesus is talking about? What's going to happen yeah. after that resurrection? Yeah. Where are you going to go? Yeah. What are you going to do? Um, and it's almost as if it's never been taught in their, their churches at all. Well, and I, I tell a story in the book about how my own daughter oh, yeah. had this perspective. You know, she was learning to drive. And so I took her to a cemetery, which is a great place to learn to drive because everyone's already dead. <laughs> You don't have to worry about hitting anybody. And so we're driving, looping around this cemetery. And I made some offhand comment about, boy, it's going to be so weird when all these bodies come up out of the ground. And she like slammed on the brakes. I forgot about Wait, that. What? What did you just say? And I was like, well, you know, the resurrection. And she's like, what are you talking about? She she had grown up in the church and she had me as a right. mom. And, 
didn't have this idea kind of stuck in her head that our bodies are going to be raised. Um, and I, I think it's just really powerful to, to listen to Paul's language as he talks about Christ's being raised as a first fruit. Mm-hmm. And you just really don't plant a garden to get one tomato mm. or one cucumber or one zucchini. You, you get the first fruit you get is a sign that there's a lot more coming. And so when the Bible is telling us that when Christ rose from the dead and his body was reanimated and it still had scars, the scars that he had before, that that what happened to him will happen to us. Hmm. Um, and yeah, I don't think we held on to that. So image of God wise, do you see a difference between the the image of God that's in the grave or Sheol and the one that is resurrected or that's the same thing? I'm pushing you hard now. <laughs> yeah, you know, I I have a musing about this that's coming out of one of the pieces of pushback I'm getting already on the book is that some people feel very strongly that only Jesus is the image of God and that we are made in the image. Like there's some sort of derivative. We're kind of- Is this a Bardian view? We're back a level. What was that? Is this that? a Bardian view? Like is this like the Christ event, an, double predestination I, kind of thing? Christologically heavy view, yeah. like we're, like a Christological reading of the Old Testament. So this is what they they would say. This is why it says in Genesis that we're made in the image. Like why that preposition bait is there to let us know that we're not actually the image. Yeah, thank God that bait was there. <laughs> which, <laughs> which is so. Which, which I, I I mean, these are scholars I respect who are saying this, but I just can't follow them yeah. here. I feel like it's very bizarre for the author of Genesis to be telling us something we're not quite. Hmm. So, I, so I've been then wondering about some of the New Testament passages that talk about how we're being made into Christ's image. And hmm. my, my new theory that I'll try on you for you is that, um, that we are the image of God in a first creation sense, but that new creation, because it's a new creation, there's also a new image. Hmm. And so Christ's resurrected body is, is the image of God in a, in a way like 2.0 because it's creation 2.0. And therefore we need to be conformed to that image hmm. and we're, we're being made into that image so our resurrected bodies will have some different qualities about them than our current bodies. I assume we'll be able to walk through walls the way Jesus did. <laughs> there'll be something. You know, we'll still be able to eat, but there'll be something. How will we build walls? That's what I want to know. <laughs> it's rocks oh, rocks keep question. dropping to the ground. That's a great question. And I keep thinking of C.S. Lewis's vision of this in The Great Divorce, where for him, heaven is a place that's more substantial, not mm. less substantial than earth. And so when when an earthly body arrives in heaven, the the grass blades are sharp and they like pierce your skin because they're and 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 we the the human body is sort of ghostly in comparison. Hmm. So I wonder if if that's the sense in which Jesus is the image that we're being made into. Yeah, I'm Rolodexing this right in my in my mind right now. But yeah, I I wonder if that would comport also with Paul and Colossians, you know, keeping your mind on heavenly things, like that that the, mm. the the new image is is the goal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think at the base level, I would say that the image cannot be lost, 
lots of people have said the image is lost or diminished or destroyed, and I believe that the image of God is still intact after the fall, but that the glory has been lost. And so Jesus, the reason why we try to conform to Christ is because Christ lives congruently with his identity as God's image. Mm. There's nothing there, there. He's not working against it or in rebellion to that identity. So he shows us what it should look like to live as God's image. And therefore, all the accompanying glory is there. Mm. And so it's the glory that we've lost that we're trying to regain by by leaning into our true identity. Um, but I think there may also be a new creation dimension to it, that there's a 2.0 coming. Yeah, that makes sense. And there's a whole discussion in philosophy of mind um, of personhood where they talk about people, various views where people have, that where people can fall in and out of personhood. So... There's one very famous view by a guy named Frankfurt um, that says, you know, a human, it sounds good at first, a human is somebody who desires to be something different than what they are. So, uh, um, and uh, that, that usually means better. Like if I'm a dishwasher, I'd like to move up to cook or whatever. They can, uh, they yeah. can imagine a desire for something different. Um, but by that token, then he then says certain types of drug addicts and, you know, infants are not human persons, right? Because they don't have any desire to be something than, uh, other than what they are. And if I hear you correctly, of, of the several critiques you could lodge, um, one of them is that kind of uniformity of human person um, locked in at some point, maybe around conception. Um, yeah. That, that's why these various stages of vulnerability are important, both at the beginning of life, yeah. end of life, or yeah. even while you're sleeping. This is one that comes up off yeah. the philosophy of mind. Sure. Uh, you know, yep. What's that old rap song, treat your woman right or get that burning bed at night, right? We're all vulnerable when we sleep. <laughs> so, um, so, so really we're, you know, I mean, you can imagine policies that could be developed that said, well, you know, severe drug addicts aren't really human persons or infants because they don't really right. have any desires or thoughts or feelings. They're not really person, even though we have no real reason to believe that they have no thoughts or feelings. So the image of God here actually does even policy work for us and the way we think about how we treat people yeah. and develop social policies, et cetera. It absolutely does. And I've been thinking more about this too. I didn't write about it in the book, but how we treat the unborn mm. or preborn. Um, what 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 does the imag the doctrine of the Imago Day, what does it uh how does it help us in the discussions about abortion? Well, if human personhood is if the grounding for the Imago Day as as our human identity is our embodiment, mm. then the moment that sperm and that egg come together and start multiplying, that's the Imago Day. Mm. It, it doesn't require a heartbeat or a or a a rational thought or a self consciousness. It doesn't require a certain level of relationality. It's embodied. If it's grounded in embodiment. Mm. Then, and if we would say that someone at the end of their life who's in a coma, who's no longer able to relate to others or have a rational thought, if they're still the image of God, then how far back can we go? Mm. We can go back to the time the cells start multiplying, in, in my mind. Yeah, um, so it's interesting. The, the, the same thing that people, while people want to talk about viability, which, you know, I'm like, if you've ever had children, children aren't viable until they're like five years old, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> maybe older. I don't know. I've got 20 year olds that I'm still thinking about it. 
but <laughs> or heartbeat or rationality or dreaming or speaking or whatever. Yeah. It's the same yeah. thing that people are trying to do with the image of God is lock it into some qualitative yeah. feature of humans. Yeah. Yep. Some capacity, which is really an ableist way of thinking about mm. humanity. Yeah. If as soon as we lock it into a capacity, then the capacity can be lost and and humans have more or less ability. There's a sliding scale. Uh, you're probably stronger than I am. Yeah, and I so and you're and you are taller than I am. So the fact do those facts make you more human than I am? And there I, I think this this idea there there are some pretty problematic ableist ideas at the center of a lot of our thinking. And my study of the image of God sort of exposed those for me one at mm. a time. Uh, well, what do what do we what does this mean for disability, physical disability? What does this mean for mental impairments of various kinds? What does it mean for dementia? Mm. When someone is experiencing dementia, are they losing their personhood, mm. or is their personhood grounded outside of themselves in God, who created them, and therefore? Personhood can't be lost because it's not something we maintain or determine. I, I think there are so many implications. And and as a result, there's something in this book to make just about everybody squirm or be uncomfortable with or disagree with. Because I delve into a lot of areas. Like I talk about race and ability and I talk about eschatology. And and there's probably something for everyone to go, <laughs> oh, I'm not going to follow her down that rabbit trail. Yeah. <laughs> That's a new version of there's something for everyone here to disagree with. Yeah. Yes. But I, what I'm hoping is that not that this book will be the final word on anything, but that it will generate conversation and thinking yeah. about how has our doctrine of the Imago Dei, whatever that doctrine is for someone listening, how has that worked its way out in policy and in ethics? And I'm, I'm teasing out one way of thinking that through. And those ableist dimensions – I think are important too because so much of the the Torah and which in, infects the rest of Scripture is really th helping Israel to think through how do they treat various types of people who fall into various types of vulnerabilities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's brilliant. Well, Doctor Carmen Imes, uh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. You got to. Oh, that's fine. I was just going to say that I dedicated the book to my neighbor Colton, who was our neighbor when we lived in Canada who's developmentally disabled. And it was a special joy a couple of weeks ago when the books arrived in the mail to video chat with mm. him and read him the dedication on the first page uh, because he was cheering me on as I was writing. And he's such a wonderful human. <laughs> and he's taught me so much about what it means to be human. So Wonderful, wonderful stuff. Dr. Carmen Imes, thank you so much for this book, Being God's Image, Why Creation Still Matters, which is kind of like a companion to Bearing God's Name. I don't remember the subtitle of Bearing God's Name. Why Sinai, Why still, Sinai matters. still Matters. I knew there was a... Yeah. You were forming yes. a block of power here, and uh, yes. both of which are fantastic reads and uh, definitely worth thank your you. time. Uh, thank you for your wisdom and guiding us through this. Thanks for taking the time to read the book and talk about it with me. I've loved hearing your thoughts. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode. 